Well, tonight we're going to be looking at 2 Kings chapter 1. 2 Kings chapter 1. As we turn there, I want to remind you of where we've been. Last week we had an introduction to this book. We focused particularly on King Ahab and the situation where uh, the people of Israel uh, were uh, confronted with the after effects of uh, the great time on the mountain with Elijah and, of course, uh, the choices that they were to make, who was God and so forth. And this is the context. This is Ahab, the, the worst king up to this point in all of Israel. He's been tremendously wicked, and his greatest sin has been introducing and falling into the idolatry of serving Baal, particularly through his wife Jezebel. And things were dire. Last week we saw that even in the midst and glimmer, or even in the, in the midst of such wickedness, there's the glimmer of the hope of repentance. As Ahab, seemingly at least for the time, repented of his sins and humility, and God told Elijah, have you seen this? Have you seen what Ahab has done in rending his clothes and, and being humble before me? And so we come to the book of 2 Kings, and the very first thing, uh, that we're reminded of is that Ahab has died. Ahab has died, but that has not stopped idolatry in Israel. Follow along as I read uh, the first chapter of the book of 2 Kings. It's very fascinating and very troubling to many people today over what takes place in this narrative. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. So he sent messengers telling them, Go inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go up to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. The messengers returned to the king, and he said to them, Why have you returned? And they said to him, There came a man to meet us and said to us, Go back to the king who sent you and say to him, Thus says the Lord, Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are sending to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. He said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him, He wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. Then the king sent to him a captain of fifty men with his fifty. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, O man of God, the king says, Come down. But Elijah answered the captain of fifty, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again the king sent to him another captain of fifty men with his fifty, and he answered and said to him, O man of God, this is the king's order, come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Again the king sent the captain of a third fifty with his fifty. And the third captain of fifty went up and came and fell on his knees before Elijah and entreated him, O man of God, 
please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. <clears throat> Behold, fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s. But now let my life be precious in your sight. Then the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, Go down with him. Do not be afraid of him. So he arose and went down with him to the king and said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baals above the God of Ekron, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire by his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So he died according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. Jehoram became king in his place in the second year of Jehoram, the king of Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, because Ahaziah had no son. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? Thus is chapter 1 of the book of 2 Kings. Let's bow briefly in prayer. Lord, as we consider this chapter and the miraculous things that are in it, the things of judgment, but also the things of truth, we pray that you would open our ears to hear it and our hearts to understand it that we would apply it to our lives, and that our faith shall be strengthened. I pray these things, and also that everything spoken here might be consistent with your own word or pass away and never be heard from again. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> well, as we come to this passage, I have to ask you the question, if you were facing what you thought might be the final illness of your life, how would that affect you? Would it make you sober and reflective? Would it make you want to do all the things on your bucket list? That's what they say now. Bucket. Where did we come up with that term, bucket list? Came from somewhere. Kick the bucket. You're going to kick the bucket so you have a bucket list. That might be true. Are you going to seriously endeavor to reflect upon your life and upon what comes next? Are you going to think, perhaps, about your progeny and about what your particular tombstone might reveal or your epitaph or obituary might say? What is your legacy? Is that what you're going to reflect on? Ahaziah here, the son of Ahab, did confront the fact that this might be his last days. In fact, he wanted to know, was this it or not? There was a sobering in the life of Ahaziah. And yet we find in this that Ahaziah was looking in the wrong place. You see, in this passage, we're reminded, as the author tells us, there is only one God. He also reminds us it is the Lord, that is Yahweh, Jehovah, the God of Israel, the covenant God. He is God. And finally, he is and always will be the God of Israel. Remember, Jesus himself describing to us the fact that Jesus is the God of the living and not the dead. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. But here we are in this passage. What a, what a fascinating passage. I have to say, I read one of the best commentaries I've ever read for a long time on this particular passage by Ralph Davis. 
and, and this particular uh, commentary, I, I think I could just preach to you those words and say, hey, this would be our sermon for tonight. It is a great commentary. But he reminds us all of the sobriety of Ahaziah. Here's Ahaziah. If you want to know who he is, we really don't know much about him. We know that he became king because his dad died. He is in the family of the dynasty of Omri, now King Ahab, and here King Ahaziah. King Ahaziah, of course, grew up under his father's reign, so he knew only in Israel that by and large worshipped the God of the Philistines, Baal. Here's Ahaziah. He's been taught these things, particularly from his mother, who was a rank pagan all her life. She never integrated into the religious structure of Israel to follow the one true God. So he was taught by his father and his mother the things of the god Baal. Now you have to understand, I am sure that Ahaziah was around or at least heard the story of Mount Carmel. You know, here we, we hear the stories of the major events in the life of our country. If we grew up in a certain time period, we know about World War II. If we grew up another time period, we know some of the events around perhaps 9-11. If we grow up around other time periods, we might know about the Vietnam War. And there are certain events or certain times when all of us can come together and say, yes, this is something that we all know about. Mount Carmel was one of those events. Mount Carmel was that time when Elijah, one prophet, against 400 from one god and 450 from another god, were in a competition to see which god was the real god. And those prophets, all of those hundreds of prophets of Baal, marched around on Mount Carmel, calling out to their god to call fire down from heaven, even cutting themselves so that blood would flow, probably chanting and doing all kinds of other things, and nothing happened. And Elijah simply prayed to God and asked for him to send a fire and zap his particular altar, his offering, even the water surrounding the altar and poured around everything were all consumed by fire. And as a result of this, all of these prophets were gathered up and they were killed. And you would think at that point in time, all Israel would turn from the wicked practice of following Baal. But Ahaziah is living proof that even killing these prophets did not kill the false worship of Baal. So we come to this first section of this particular thing, of this particular chapter. It says, Ahaziah, this king, it doesn't tell us anything he did. It didn't tell us any of his rules, any of his leadership in battle, any of those things. It just tells us he had an accident. He was on either the roof or the second story. We don't know exactly where it was. But somehow he fell through the floor. This is my wife's one of my wife's greatest fears is falling through something. I don't understand it. Uh, every once in a while, she'll, she'll point to me to the ceiling. Is that a new leak up there by the, by the upstairs bathroom? Uh, because she thinks we might fall through the floor if it is. Uh, but here it happened. Her greatest fear came true for Ahaziah. He fell a complete story down to the ground, and he's injured seriously. And he realizes this might be the end. And so what does he do? He says, go to my God. Go inquire of Baals above the God of Ekron whether I shall recover from this sickness. The problem is there's only one true God. 
this God, the God of Israel, outlasts his adversaries. One of the fascinating things about this chapter is the first thing we learn in the whole chapter is that Ahab died. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Ahab was a terrible king. The people were suffering. And religious, religious instruction was not only waning, but was not present. And yet God is outlasting Omri and Ahab and now Ahaziah. God remains God despite all those who would oppose him. He outlasts his adversaries. But the second thing we learn is this. There is no compromise on this issue. Here is Ahaziah. He's inquiring of the God of the people around him. And by this point in time, even though they've seen in, in the last several years, they have seen some of these events that took place on Mount Carmel or other places to prove that God is the true God. And even the people, the people who were there and witnessed this event that all the news channels covered in that day, even when they said, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God, yet they are the same ones who we understand like Ahaziah, are seeking the gods of those around them. In this case, veils above. You see, there's no compromise on this issue contrary to Ahaziah's upbringing. As I've already noted, Ahaziah grew up worshiping idols. So it is too. You grow up here, you grow up with certain idols. Perhaps you worship them, perhaps you don't. If you grow up in the southeast, you grow up in SEC country. Sometimes. The SEC can become an idol. If you grow up in the United States, you grow up in a place that loves sports, that loves entertainment, that loves Hollywood actors, that loves all kinds of different things. And we find out that if you live in our country and you're known across the world, they think of the United States of America, they also understand you love the pleasures of sexual activity. You love greed. You love money. You love all kinds of evil things. The gods are all around us. When tough times come, another god. After all, alcohol and drugs. What do we turn to in times of distress? Contrary to Ahaziah's upbringing, there is no compromise on the fact that there is only one god to go to for succor and strength. That is the god of Israel. And so when God intervenes, he, asks, he has Elijah the Tishbite ask this question. Notice it's repeated several times throughout this text. Is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Baals above the God of Ekron? The God of Ekron, this was one of the kings of Philistine, of Lystia. So he was going probably about 45 miles. He was sending these people from Samaria over to Ekron. And in this particular case, he's asking this God, and yet Ahaziah should have known better. After all, Elijah was a thorn in his dad's side, at least from his dad's perspective. Elijah was constantly, along with Micaiah and other prophets, telling the father Ahab and now the son Ahaziah the things of God and the importance of following the covenant God of Israel. Ahaziah should have known better, but instead he committed the error of consulting the Lord of the Flies. 
That's what Beelzebub means. The Lord or master of the flies. Now it's interesting, some think this is actually a corruption in the text that it actually should be Beelzebul, which means uh, master of the prince or lord prince uh, here in this sense. I don't know. The, the New Testament, Matthew, uses the term Beelzebul here. It uses the term Beelzebub, but I think, well, how, how better to describe what is going on than to say he wants to worship the Lord of the Flies. Perhaps you were told to read that book in school as a kid, The Lord of the Flies. And it's one of those books that proves the words of the book of Judges. When everyone does as he sees fit, chaos ensues. And the destructive tendencies of the people downwardly spiral. In this chapter, Ahaziah is consulting the Lord of the Flies, uh, assumedly either for the predictive sense of am I going to die or am I going to live, or perhaps even for healing. But God, the true God, will have his adherence. Here's, here's the scene. Ahaziah is sick, he's laying in his bed, he's injured, probably uh, very seriously injured, broken bones, maybe a spinal issue, uh, maybe a head injury, we don't know what, what serious nature of things are. Uh, they know it's a dire situation. He's laying in his bed, he sends his messengers to go 45 miles away and consult the god of the Philistines uh, from Ekron, and instead, as they go on the way, they're, they're uh, accosted or met, by Elijah, the guy wearing the camel hair short, uh, shirt and wearing a leather belt, uh, and uh, we, we get that impression from these prophets in Old Testament times, and, and he tells them, uh, go back and tell your king and say to him this question, is it because there is no God in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, and tell him this as well? Now, therefore, thus says the Lord, you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. God will have his adherents who intervene and cause upheaval. Because what happens is these servants go back and they tell the king of Samaria what has happened. They never make it to Ekron. They never make it the 45 miles. They've gone part of the distance and return. The king is surprised. Why are you back here so quickly? What's going on? And, of course, they tell him the circumstances. All this is repeated. Uh, you know, you see this question and these things repeated over and over again in, in this text. And he says, and he asks them to describe the appearance of this man. And they do. They say, here he is. He's wearing these clothing and so forth. And he knows immediately who this guy is. Ahaziah knew very well who Elijah was. He knew who he represented. He knew the religious opposition that he had towards Ahaziah worshiping the Baal, God of the Philistines. And he knew that Elijah was representing God for the nation of Israel in religious instruction and in calling them to repent from their idolatry. And so in that sense, he knew that Elijah was speaking the word of God. He was speaking God's word. When Elijah said, you will die, you won't rise up from bed, you will not recover from this illness, that's it, your life is over. Ahaziah knew 
that Elijah's claim was that this was the veracity, uh, the, 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 the truthful uh, word of veracity, we might say, of God. And of course, we also understand immediately when they described the messenger and we described his message, we understand that God's adherents will often look and act distinctively. That should be convicting, shouldn't it? This is perhaps the greatest indictment on any believer. When someone says, well, I don't see that your life is any different from anybody else. When, as the saying goes, you might not be convicted in the court of public opinion over whether or not you are a believer. You see, the person of God should at least act distinctively proclaiming God's word truthfully and boldly and living it out according to his purposes. And also, understanding that there is no compromise. One God. One of the great themes of this entire book of 2 Kings is the, is the theme of idolatry. Every single king of Israel is going to be compared to that of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who introduced the idolatrous images of golden calves and told the people of Israel, these are the gods who brought you out of Egypt. And everyone that follows Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, hint, every single king of Israel who follows this, is going to be condemned by God. Because there's only one God. All that God wants through Elijah's prophecy is for the people in truthful humility to not only say the words, but to live the words, the Lord, he is God. Because this is the rest of the story here in this chapter. The king doesn't like the words that Elijah said. He wanted the, the, uh, the, the, the false god, Baal, Baal's above. He wanted that false god to tell him everything was going to be okay. He wanted that false god to give the power of healing so that he could go on with his life or perhaps give him even the instruction that he would die so that he could go on and enjoy what little time he had left. But instead, Elijah interrupted the party. God sent him instead to say, God says, not this false god, not your own ideas, not your advisors over here, but the God of Israel, whom you reject, has said, you will die. And so Ahaziah, what was his reaction? Assumedly, he got angry. Why would you send 51 men to go and capture one prophet dressed in a coat of hair with a leather belt? Unarmed. Why would you do that? Assumedly, it's either to silence him, persuade him to be stopped in his tracks, or to remove him, perhaps even kill him. The problem is this. He ran across the true God who is able to defend his people. This is the troubling thing that so many people in today's society don't like about this chapter. This first king, or captain, uh, from the king, comes with his 50 men. So there's 51 men, one of them the captain, and he comes to Elijah, and here are the words, verse 9, O man of God, the king says, come down. You would think, well, Elijah is supposed to submit to authority. Is that not true? Instead, he says this, If I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 
did. What is it with Elijah and fire? Elijah loves to call down fire from heaven to prove that God is God. Here he says, if I am a man of God, let this take place. Notice Elijah does not take personal vengeance. He doesn't take out his ninja outfit and go start killing everybody like they do in the movies today. He's he's not the the, the guy that comes riding into town on his horse and shoots everybody up. No, he's, he's not that. He leaves vengeance in the hands of God. But at the same time, we understand that that God here has the power to defend even the indefensible, a solitary individual of his 51 trained soldiers, one against a platoon. And it was really against the attempt to silence or destroy the word of God. And Hezekiah didn't like it. Do you like it when somebody tells you that things are not going to go well? In certain circumstances, one of our responses is anger. doesn't seem fair. It's not something we really want to happen. And if God says one particular thing about it, if we understand that God is, is speaking in our lives and, and telling us that basically the consequences of a sin or an illness or something like that, these things won't change. They'll take place the rest of your life, and perhaps your life is, is nearly over. We don't like that. Ahaziah wanted to end that, but he was reminded even in this attempt to silence God's prophet that the Lord is God. The Lord, he is God. He is able to bring wrath upon his enemies. The second captain comes, another 50, so now this is 102 men in two companies of 50 and their captain. And he comes and he says, the king's order is this, come down quickly. Notice the posture of these two captains. They are imbued with the authority of their king, and they come with that authority to the prophet, assuming that they have authority over someone representing God. And the first one says, the king says, come down. The second one says, the king's order is come down quickly. And again, what happens? Elijah says these things, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50. There are those who will look at this passage and say, this does not sound like a loving God. It's rather pointless to take the innocent lives of 50 or 51 men. Well, first of all, we know as believers in the Bible that there's no such thing as an innocent man. Secondly, we also know that nothing God does is pointless. What is the point of what he's doing here? The point of what he's doing is he's revealing again, because the people of Israel didn't get it the first time, they're revealing there is only one God, and it's the Lord. And this is confirmed by this particular fire. Notice here the past or the present fire from heaven in this section is a fire of judgment consuming the people because they failed to respond properly to the God who revealed himself to them on Mount Carmel. But secondly, the past fire from heaven, the first time that this took place, when Elijah called down fire from heaven through prayer and God answered that prayer, it confirmed for all the people that the Lord, he really is the one true God. He is the only one that has power. He is the only one that can intervene with miraculous events for the sake of his people on the face of the earth. And he is the only one who is the true God of heaven and earth. So 
so this particular event is truly a follow-up from the first one. The first time, God was confirming there's only one God in Israel. And when the king and his people rejected that, again, God then brought the judgment that was due that nation, represented by their leader, Ahaziah, and he consumed these 102 people with fire. The Lord is God. One of the things that we forget sometimes is the idea of representation. You see here in this place, this captain was representing the influence and power and position of the king of Israel. At the same time, that king of Israel was supposed to be representing God's rule on earth to his people, the Israelites. This was a very important position. It was his duty not to defend the constitution of their country, but to serve God wholeheartedly according to his law and purpose, to bring justice in the land, to instruct the people in godliness and truth. These things were all a part of his job description as the king of the people. And yet, because he was failing, when he gave the power and authority to these military men to come and arrest, assumedly to execute Elijah, this was a direct attack upon the power and word of God. And so by striking down these individuals, it was a representation of the people of Israel and their rejection of the true God of Israel. And so here, God is simply reminding us by this very vicious act that he is God. He will have no other God take his glory. He is the God of Israel. Fortunately, we come to the next part of the story, which seems to be a little bit more gracious. There's a third 50 that's come. This is now 150 soldiers, three captains, 153 men. The third one comes, and instead of saying, the king says you need to do such and such, this time he falls down on his knees. In other words, he has here a posture of humility, and he pleads for his life. He says, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. And he gives the circumstance, behold, fire did come down from heaven, consumed the two former captains of 50 men with their 50s. But now, again, here's the plea, let my life be precious in your sight. He doesn't give a reason. He doesn't say, well, it's, it's justified, we're better soldiers than they were. He doesn't say anything like that. He just simply comes in fear of the living God. And probably in fear of Elijah, too. Because the God of Israel is able to do this for people. He's able to deflate pride or reveal humility. Now, did this captain have true faith in God? I don't know. But at that moment, he had a proper fear of God, like we all should. And when he did that, when God deflated this man's pride... You can almost, and, and this is the picture I got from, from Ralph Davis's commentary. It's so, so funny to think that, uh, you know, kind of putting it in modern parlance. If you were uh, in, in his, if, if this, this had happened today, it's like he's watching on the news all the, all the victims of this great fire that have been, uh, you know, burned up uh, viciously on the battlefield. And, and he's watching that, and suddenly on the intercom comes the instructions from his superior, Captain so-and-so. 
you are now instructed to go and do what these two armies failed to do. And this guy is thinking to himself, I, I'm, I'm done for. Th this is it. And instead of going with the courage and boldness of a soldier of performing an impossible task, instead he comes in humility and bows before Elijah and says, please spare the life of me and my man. And God honors that. One of the things we find out is that Elijah's life really was in danger. The angel says this, the angel of the Lord said to Elijah, go down with him, do not be afraid of him. In other words, we understand these men were not there just to escort Elijah to the king so they can have a nice conversation together. No, the king had sent them to take his life. And so now the angel of the Lord intervenes. This is the captain you're to go down with. Go with him. He does. He goes to the king. And it's interesting. We find out. Here's Elijah. What gave him the courage to stand up to these first two captains and their men? I don't think it's Elijah's power or his sense of purpose or even the, the strength and vitality of his faith. I think it's that God gives his servants courage, but he also gives them truth. He was able to approach an enemy unarmed. Remember, uh, Elijah was told to start all this stuff. You know, Ahaziah is living his life, he's fallen, he's had an accident, he's, he's looking for help from, from this, uh, this God from a foreign country, he sends off his messengers. Uh, Elijah was the one sent to intervene. You know, it wasn't as if Ahaziah was seeking out Elijah. Ahaziah goes to these messengers unarmed, tells them what God says, goes back home, and here now he's able to confront these armies, platoons of 50 men, unarmed, and just by praying to God or by saying a statement to these men, if I am a man of God, let this take place, then it happens. The prayer of a faithful man, of a righteous man, availeth much. He's able to approach an enemy unarmed, but we know that he's armed with something very important. The king is told by Elijah in verse 16, thus says the Lord, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Baals above the God of Ekron, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Now he's already told the messengers this. The messengers have told the king this. This has been repeated repeatedly throughout this section of scripture. But now Elijah has the opportunity to come to the king and tell him the truth. It's hard to do. He's talking to the leader of his people. The king who has the authority to take his life, although he failed twice already. And yet he's willing, by the courage and boldness given to him by God, to tell him the truth. Things have not changed. God's word does not change. He's not a, a, a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. In, fa in fact, here he is telling you, you shall surely die. Elijah's armed with the truth. And in case you missed it, it says in verse 17, so he died. God's word is truth. Even in this fulfillment of scripture, this should assure us, provide another example of an assurance that God's word is true. God's word comes to pass. God's word is always going to do what he set out for it to do. 
And then, of course, we read the words at the end, Jehoram, the brother of Ahaziah, becomes king. Ahaziah didn't have any children and so forth. Again, God outlasts kings and kingdoms. Why? Why is this story in the Bible? It's in the story, to, it's in the Bible to remind us who God is, how much power he has, and that there is no other God. There's no compromise here. There's not God and money. There's not God and pleasure. There's not God and fill in the blanks, whatever these things are for you. There's one God. There's no compromise here. And of course, the other thing is to understand that this one true God will preserve his church even against all odds and all enemies. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this story in Scripture. We thank you that it's not just a story. It is the truth. Lord, help us to learn from it. Confront us with our own idols. Help us, Lord, to be sober not, not just when we face death, but to be sober throughout our life that we might be confronted with our own sin, come to you in humility, plead for our lives, and marvel at your grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name.